Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing EDI and what it means in anti-racist social work practice and education with our guest, Dr. Candace Beasley and Warren Graham. Thanks for listening. Again, and thank you for joining us for this second hour of our podcast on equity, diversity, and inclusion in social work practice and in social work education. Um, I guess since you're back for part two, we didn't uh, scare you away too much uh, during our part one of this podcast presentation. So thank you all for joining us again. I am continuing to be joined by my wonderful guests, uh, Warren Graham and Candace Beasley, for this second part of our conversation. Now, during our first hour of this podcast, we discussed this idea of anti-racist social work practice, this idea of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and where these ideas came from. We we demystified the idea that, that this is something new in the social work profession. We talked about um, our own experiences as BIPOC social workers, our own experiences as BIPOC social work educators, and, and also this idea of authenticity, and that if we are truly going to engage in anti-racist social work practice, if we are going to be true to the ideas of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, and moving our profession forward, then we have to be authentic. We have to be authentic with our lived experiences. We have to be authentic in our own process of self-reflection and of self-correction. And we have to be authentic in our conversations uh, that we have with our colleagues and with those outside of the social work profession and inviting them into understand what our experiences are being willing to listen and learn to their experiences and knowing what uh, knowing what is necessary to move this conversation forward now if we're going to do this we have to be uncomfortable we have to be okay with being uncomfortable and dare i say we have to be courageous. Um, A lot of times I have conversations with my students in class about the necessity to engage in courageous conversation. Now, courageous conversation means that we have to be uncomfortable and okay with knowing that we don't know. And we have to be okay with understanding um, that in order to learn, we have to be we have to be able to be courageous enough to put our side, put aside our fear of change and our comfortability that we live in, this homeostasis that we live in. So I'd like to start there, if we could, Warren and Candice, with this idea of addressing the fear of change and the homeostasis that we live in. What are your thoughts on that? You know, when we think homeostasis, like that kind of, when I think homeostasis, you know, I I don't just think equilibrium, you know, but I think status quo, you know, um, and and that hasn't worked out well for us so far. So, you know, when we think about uh, what do we do do for that? I mean, I think we have to challenge what that homeostasis is, you know, what, what is our benchmark what is our what is the foundation what is what is the norm um because we, what we may find is that we've been operating from a place that was already broken so maybe it's not going back to a homeostasis uh that, you know, that was already created for us and not by us but you know maybe it's we need to really take an honest look at kind of where we are where we've been what we've done and what has yet to be done so that we can create a new standard that becomes a foundation for that homeostasis. Absolutely. I'll say for, you know, social work professionals, we cannot ask of others what we ourselves are not willing to do, you know, and as researchers, researchers, do you not ask people to participate in your research? As practitioners, you ask your clients to change. As 
you know, as uh, professors, we ask our students to engage. You're asking them to change and to meet a learning curve, and yet you yourself are unwilling to change anything. And so you cannot stay kind of like in this homeostatic muck. You have to change. Nothing comes from staying stagnant. So although, you know, we are comfortable maybe in our space and we're comfortable with things um, being the way they've always been, Unfortunately, life is changing and the world is changing, right? And those people who don't move forward get left behind, you know, and I don't know about y'all, we're not near retirement. And I think Social Security is moving that retirement age, y'all. I don't know, I don't think we're retiring anytime soon, right? And so the point that I'm making is, is that, you know, even if your own values, you know, are maybe a little bit archaic and behind, I tell my students, you know, you can think however it is you want to. All of us were human. So we all have our discriminatory beliefs. You know, we, we just do. Even for those of us who can't ascribe to racism because we don't benefit from it, we are discriminatory in our own right. But when you step outside of the threshold of your door, you are now a social work practitioner for humanity and you don't have the authority to be racist or discriminatory. You have got to change your thinking. And that's even for those of us who have been in this game for a very long time. You have got to change. You don't have a choice anymore, right? Unless you don't want to be in the game anymore. So if you want to hang into the game, then you don't have a choice because life is changing in this life of technology and Facebook and WhatsApp and videoing and recording, right? And everything live streaming and everything. It's only a matter of time before you get caught, and what you're doing when you're being harmful. And this isn't even about just getting caught. You understand? These things have been happening for a very long time, but it's coming to people's conscious awareness because now we have the technology to show that this has been happening for a very, very long time. So if we are to hold others accountable for those things, not just even racism, we're talking about also DEI, right? So we're talking about... Um, hegemonic masculinity. We're talking about being discriminatory toward people who have different abilities. We're talking about all of that stuff, you know, even if you don't ascribe to the whole racism thing, everybody fits unless you're a white male, you will fit into one of those categories, correct? So whatever category it is that you ascribe to, if you want people to understand the fullness and totality of that, right, and move the profession forward to giving honor and fixing those things, we have to ascribe to all of those things to move the profession forward, but you yourself have to change to be a leader in that so that others can follow. And, and can, I'm sorry, can I, can I add something to that, you know, as well? Because you said something really important. Um, and Dr. Beasley, you talked about being, you know, social workers, you know, being a social worker for, for humanity. And, and I think that's important because, you know, when, when I started teaching some of this content, it was under the, the guise of social justice. It was kind of, I was late to the to the party understanding that social justice was a component of, of human rights. So why is it it took me having to become an educator to be even introduced to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and what that means? So if we reframe uh, how we see social justice and how we see socializing uh, students to the profession, then maybe we'll do it from a human rights perspective. And if we do that from a human rights perspective, then maybe we won't be so hesitant to change, right? Because we've already been changing. You know, our language in the field has become a lot more inclusive for for individuals, you know, LGBTQIA, um, differently abled. So we, we've been changing to accommodate um, the different ways in which people show up, and you know, um, but we, we still don't, change or embrace change as relates relates to issues of uh, race, racism, power, privilege, and oppression. And, and I think that's the last stronghold um, that we really need to, you know, to conquer, you know, without change, there is no growth, right? And, and the world around us is ever changing, and we need to be fluid, you know, in order to change with it, if we are going to continue to work in this field. Absolutely. And especially with the intersectionality, right, the intersectionality of race and those um, othering issues of oppression, 
you know, so differently abled and race and LGBTQIA and race and all of those when we add intersectionalities and race, then it also becomes extremely convoluted as well. So yeah, I completely agree with that. We ask others to be comfortable enough to listen to our story and to listen to our lived experience, our lived intersectional experience, then we ourselves have to also be willing to to be open to change and be willing to be to learn from others and be changed from others as well. So we, we've reflected on how pushing through feeling uncomfortable is important for social workers. I wonder, um, what are your thoughts on how does this relate to social workers with privilege? Well, I will say this, that social workers with privilege, um, they have an expectation to allow people to be uncomfortable. Social workers with privilege does not have any problem with people feeling uncomfortable when they're telling their story that they're comfortable with, right? And, and so, for example, if you have a social worker with privilege who have become comfortable with a certain level of uncomfort, uncomfortability, what do I mean by that? Let's take a research agenda that they have been working with all through their dissertation, you understand, that might be uncomfortable. Let's just say um, violence and rape. There are people who are very uncomfortable with violence and rape, especially if that was their issue. And you will have, you know, professors with privilege will walk into a classroom and freely have a discussion about rape where that is a very sensitive subject. And they will infer that you need to get over that, won't they? Because this is their this is their research agenda. And they will tell you, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? What will happen if you have a client that comes into your office and they've been raped? They will tell you that. Then you need to gain some comfortability about that because you have to, we're part of the helping profession for goodness sake. And if you have someone who's raped that comes into your office, you have got to do everything need be to help that person. And that is completely true. But now, if you have someone, right, who was, let's say, related to the George Floyd family, who comes in and want to discuss that, then this is when the world will end. What if you have someone who is struggling with addiction because they're a descendant from a member of the Trail of Tears? You understand Then that's now a different issue. So the same tenets apply, you know. So, so just because someone is coming from uh, status quo privilege does not mean that they themselves do not have issues, right? But they are free to tell their story. And what happens is, I think what people of color do not appreciate, you are forced to be comfortable with their story. But they have the um, privilege, dare I say, to run and flee from your story. And why? Because now, what do they say? They have the power to control policies. And now our stories are silenced by policies. Our stories are silenced through what we can't do, what we can't say. Oh, it's too combative. Oh, you know, oh, people are not comfortable with that. Oh, well, no, that doesn't fit in the curriculum. I'll even say in the academy, what do they say? Oh, you need to focus on what's on the licensure. Is that on the licensure test? No, we need to make certain that they pass the licensure test, Ben. That's not on the licensure test, Ben. Why are we talking about that, Ben? You know, let's not talk about that. It's just that, and to be honest with you, diversity and oppression is not on the licensure test. It's just because that's in Council of Social Work Education, EPOS. That's why diversity and oppression seep through, but that's just one class, isn't it? But yet, we expect them to be this expert on diversity and oppression. Well, how is that? It's, it's technically one class. And unless they have a very learned professor, that's kind of trickling that throughout the curriculum and in other classes. Really, they have one class that's focusing on that. And we expect them to be an expert when they come out on the other side. How is that possible? You know, and so I, I will say that the privileged forces others to be comfortable with difference that they're comfortable with, but they have the power and privilege to silence difference that they're uncomfortable with. And then there lies the problem. 
And we as social work professionals, and I'll often have this conversation with students as well, we no longer have the privilege of being silent. We have an ethical mandate to speak up when we know that um, people are being harmed in any way. And so when we apply that same thinking to our profession and to us as really the privileged few who have the education, who have the licensure, who have all those fancy letters after our signature in our email, then what do we do with that? I remember that um, one of the very first responses from a, a good friend, actually the first thing she said to me, she is a good friend and a, a mentor and a fellow uh, BIPOC uh, professor said, immediately after I defended my dissertation, now remember Ben, we lift as we climb. And so how do we then use our position to continue to invite others to this same level of professional privilege that we enjoy as well, I think is an important component as well. So how can we as social work educators or how can our listeners who might be social work educators or social work practitioners draw upon our own privilege to help invite BIPOC students or BIPOC clients into these conversations? I think being able to draw on our own privilege um, has to be done very delicately. You know, I am just thinking about race-based microaggressions in the myth of meritocracy. You know, when I lean on my own privilege, you know, I need to be mindful that at some point someone's going to say, you know, there are no glass ceilings for people who look like you because you have achieved, right? So um, how I frame leaning on my own privilege, how I, how I lean uh, on or use my own positionality to, to support who I am and what I do, I think that has to be uh, discussed very carefully, you know, so that you, you, you fight the race-based microaggression before it even happens, you know, by being very intentional, you know, about, about the language you choose. Uh, so that's one. And, and I think, two, um, I think it's our obligation to, to lift as we climb, right, to understand that, you know, th there are people who don't occupy these spaces and, you know, there, there were rules being created for them and around them uh, that isn't reflective of, of their needs and their wants. Um, so I, I think where possible, we, we should level the playing field, you know, by, by using our positionality, our levels of identity um, to sometimes speak for those who have no voice. You know, it's not just a matter of having a seat at the table, but it's, it's having voice and power at the table. Um, so I, I think that's that's part of our obligation to to, to use uh, what we have to, to advance a larger agenda. And, and I'll say also education with an education. You know what I usually um, don't share with many people, but I'll share and I guess sharing it with a larger audience. Right. When I was in high school, I was placed at a high school, a very status quo high school that I did not want to go to. And I remember my elders told me you are going to this high school and you're going and you won't like it, but you're going to go because as long as you go there, they have no choice but to teach you what they know. And and the reason for that was because in their own way, although they were not educated well, they knew that I had to become, dare I say, bilingual in their educational construct. And that was the purpose of that. And so as far as BIPOC faculty or BIPOC, and what I also do as a BIPOC practitioner for BIPOC clients, as our role as social workers, one of our major roles are not just advocate, but as educator. And I take that very seriously, not just educating them and, you know, as far as, you know, as, as a professor, you know, not just educating my students as far as what, you know, this, you know, what social work, how to navigate white social work. We are in a white social work construct, and there's a lot of our um, students and our clients that do not understand this construct. When you are brought up in a BIPOC environment and you are brought up with BIPOC verbiage, they do not understand 
very intelligent people do not understand how this works. They don't understand what is meant by certain things, you know, all of this silent coding, all of these innuendos, all of these different things, you know, and I don't know, maybe, maybe they do know, I never bothered to ask or care to ask, but I don't know if some status quo people really understand that we don't always understand what they mean by certain things. I'm very well versed. I know what that means when certain looks and certain ways of doing things. I even have to teach my eight-year-old son what kids mean when they do certain things and what they say, you know, and it's just a whole different way. It's a whole different construct of things. And I know I use the word construct constantly, but BIPOC people live in a fully different world than the world that white folks live in. And I don't know if they fully understand that. And we have to navigate those worlds. And so I, I view that our position within the academy and as well as going into um, as being clinicians, we also have a responsibility of teaching our students and our clients how to navigate those worlds. And again, and I, I genuinely mean this, if we don't learn that, we don't survive. We don't. This is about survival as well. Why are we standing here? Because someone taught us how to navigate those worlds. You know, I have to learn how to, I'm from the South, and we're very animated, and we're loud, and we laugh loud, and whatever. And when I enter into the university, I have to tone that down, because I'll be seen as disruptive. I'll be seen as angry. I'll be seen as, you know, combative, when actually I was just laughing. You know, and so I learn how to lower my tone. I have to le learn how to soften my voice. I have to learn how to say things in a certain way so I won't be viewed as angry. And I have to go and teach my black female students how to lower your voice and how to change your intonation and how to change how you say things so that people won't take you, so that they would actually give you a chance. So that, so because if you say things the wrong way, they won't even give you the opportunity to see your brilliance. And you're brilliant, but they won't give you the opportunity if you don't say, oh, hi, Dr. Bencomo, how are you doing? You can't go in and say, hey, Ben, what's up? What you doing? That's it. You're finished. I have to go in and say, Dr. Bencomo, how are you doing today? Lovely weather we're having. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity of interviewing with you today. And that is learned behavior of navigating throughout these different constructs and it's very sad that we have to do that it's sad i can't be my authentic self right but there's authenticity and authenticity there's authenticity for survival and then there's authenticity within the profession and for people of color we have also different meanings of authenticity as well but that's a whole nother podcast once again uh, now, dare I say, Candace, I, I don't know that you've you've witnessed conversations I have with my students because more often than not, they look like the latter, I think, in your example there. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, I get your point and I understand what you're saying there because I think we all do that. We all uh, learn how to exist in spaces where we were not meant to exist. And so when we are there, when we find ourselves in those places, or when we find ourselves in mixed company, as my mother would say, when we find ourselves in those spaces, why is this intergroup dialogue so vital? And how can we lead as social workers, how can we lead those conversations to engage in that intergroup dialogue that is so vital? I, I guess amongst ourselves, you know, it, it's vital, you know, once again, because we share a profession, you know, and, and I think that we're speaking the same language, you know, and, and I think because we come from the same place of understanding our core values, we come from the same place of having that truly inherent understanding. You know, it's different than if we we're having that conversation and then there's psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors involved. You know what I mean? I, I think that's very different. I think when social workers are all sitting at the same table, we have that shared understanding of why we're doing it. However, why does it not happen? I think on one side, you have people who think this is ridiculous. What, 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 are, we, what are we talking about? Why, why are we even doing this, right? Let's keep things the way that it's been, that status quo thinking. I think that you have people who are fearful. 
I think you have status quo people who are fearful of having these conversations. They don't want to lose friends. They don't want to lose colleagues. They don't want people to think of them differently. And they don't want to be honest about what they don't know. I think they have people who have research agendas who truly don't even understand their research agendas. You understand? They have people who write about things and they truly don't even understand what they're writing about. I think people are scared to be exposed. I, I'm going to be honest with you. For me, I have fear of exploitation, right? I don't, do not take what I say in this space and then try to use that against me later. I don't. That's not going to come out well, Ben and Warren. That's not going to come out well for anybody. <laughs> That's not going to come out well. What I say, and you, you understand what I mean. I, I do have a fear of that. I don't mind having vulnerability, but it's like the green mile. What I say in this space, we're going to leave it here. When I walk out, don't try to capture me in the hallway when I'm with students and say, oh, Candace, by the way, when you said this and when you got teary, I don't like that. And people will do that and people will use that against you. I don't understand why the academy is so, um, you know, competitive. It doesn't have to be, but it is, you know, and so you have people of color who also are scared of exploitation They, you know, and I'm one of them. I don't like to be exploited, you know, and, and so we have our different fears. And there's some people of color, can I be honest, that also um, I'm going to use Warren's words, are kind of performative because unfortunately they're so scared and they have been so pushed down and beaten with this white supremacist. They have now kind of conformed to white supremacy. And, and that's a thing. And I've seen that as well. And they just don't even see that anything is a problem. And, and we have that group as well, you know, that they just kind of go along to get along. And they're just going to go along with that status quo thinking because that's what's safe for them. Because at one point in life, they've tried the fight and the fight didn't work. And they've been threatened by the institution or the agency or whatever. And they've been threatened and they've been fired, maybe, or they haven't been promoted or they haven't gotten their job or they've been looked over you know, and passed over and passed over. And then finally, you know, people are like, you know what? I'm six, seven, eight years out of retirement. I'm not doing this anymore. And they just kind of take a back seat and they just coast, you know, and I, and I can't blame them for that as well, you know? And so they just, so sometimes people are just tired of fighting and, and, and that's a thing as well, you know? And so I think, um, it's a need to have these conversations together, but I also fully understand the varied reasons why these conversations do not happen because the people who are responsible for keeping us, dare I say, safe, do not do their jobs in keeping us safe. And I will say it is done purposely to not do their jobs in keeping us safe. And I said it, Ben and Warren, there. I said it. They, they, they purposely do not do their jobs because they do not want these conversations to happen once again. And as I guess that's why they call it maintaining the status quo. And they do a very good job at it. You know, I think what you said is also connected back to a previous comment or, or kind of strain of the conversation around safety. You know, um, it's it, it's safe not to have these conversations. Right. It, it, it's safe as an institution to have adjuncts teaching some of this potentially inflammatory content because you can satisfy students in their, their discomfort when they complain by saying you let the adjunct go instead of or actually requiring tenure track faculty to teach some of this difficult content, you know, with students full understanding that they're not going anywhere. Like they're here, so you have to deal with it. You know, we shouldn't necessarily placate or empower students in a way that's going to contribute to their um, uh, vulnerability and in, in, in a bad way, like their their inability to move through being uncomfortable. You know, so uh, th this intergroup dialogue it can be extremely helpful when you think about it as a, as a tool. To, to guide a conversation where you have individuals from differing, you know, backgrounds and you can create new levels of, of understanding and relation. Uh, you can uh, create collective vision that really upholds the dignity of people, the dignity of one another, right? And in advancing um, an agenda, right? An agenda of wholeness, um, you know, and in, in, in that 
conversation or a dialogue, you can teach uh, other social workers, non-BIPOC social workers, what it is to be bilingual and bicultural and teach them why code switching is a thing and why that's important in the context of historical trauma and and, and, an emotional unwellness and emotional attacks and emotional battery. You know, why is it necessary? Um, And you can easily connect that back to the competencies, back to engagement. So when one student walks by and goes, Hello, you know, Dr. Graham, and another one goes by and say, what's up, Dr. G? You know, um, I I should not have to defend to a peer why I allow that level of communication, because in that space, in that moment, that was a safe space for that student. Right. And and I'm not going to police those safe spaces, you know, um, because not every space is safe. And, you know, when you start your your class and you talk about how what you're going to go over for the semester and what the expectations are for students, you know, I stopped using this classroom is going to be a safe space a long time ago. Right. Because is as wonderful as I can think I am. I am not that powerful to, you know, to to create the reality of safety for some of our students, especially the BIPOC marginalized students. It's an illusion, and I'm not going to perpetuate that in my classroom, but I do ask them to be brave or using uh, Ben's word, safe. I mean, um, courageous, right? I want you to be courageous. I want you to move past your uncomfortability and contribute to the conversation uh, and uh, knowing full well that someone is going to learn something because of it. Um, so, you know, when we th- intergroup dialogue can be helpful, kind of removing some of the assumptions that contribute to prejudice, um, and, you know, but it, do we do we do it all the time? Do we utilize it as a tool? Um, no, you know, um, I, and I think ignoring it as a tool just contributes to some of that exploitation uh, that you spoke about earlier and, you know, and it continues to exacerbate the historical trauma that students, BIPOC students of color, BIPOC faculty uh, go through in, in, a, in communities that also kind of parallel the experience of BIPOC clients. Yeah. So, Warren, you speak of this idea of safe spaces. It's, it's um, we as social workers are are often trained and socialized into that idea of creating safe spaces. Um, we talk about that um, in our classrooms, like you were saying, and we talk about that in um, group settings, out in practice, uh, in practice settings as well. But how can this idea of a safe space and creating a safe space, how can it be? yes a benefit in some ways but more importantly how can it be a hindrance to engaging in these types of courageous conversations when we encourage people to exist in a quote-unquote safe space so so i think first we need to challenge you know what what that safe space what what does it look like what does it even mean right because like comfortability does doesn't mean Uh, sensitivity. Like I tell students, um, I will be sensitive, you know, but I have no problems making you uncomfortable because it's in that uncomfortability that the learning probably is. Some students think uncomfortable means unsafe. And and I think we need to challenge that, you know, being my my class as a brave, courageous or safe space does not mean I'm not going to disagree with you. That that doesn't mean I'm going to I'm not going to call you on your stuff. When, when it manifests, um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to b- call your attention to a, a thing, a thought, a behavior that I think contributes to white supremacist behavior. You know, because if I don't, I'd be remiss as my responsibility as a social worker and as an educator. And I'm bringing it to your attention because you may not even know that this is how you're presenting. And if no one in this world of PC, everyone wants to be PC and politically correct and nobody wants to offend anybody, uh, you can't even listen to comedians anymore because, you know, someone is going to say something about someone and, you know, all of a sudden you'll see it trending that, you know, we're going to revoke this one's card or revoke that one's card and, you know, they're on the outs. Um, But everything is in context. 
you know, so when we say a safe space, mean safe to express opinions, uh, uh, safe to have differing opinions, uh, safe, safe to engage in, in discourse that may or may not be um, totally satisfying and pleasing to the eye, but necessary for your growth. You know, so, you know, we, we have to do a better job as you know, the quarterbacks in the classroom uh, really envisioning and really laying the foundation for students on what it is to, to be in that place. I, I think safety um, utilized within the classroom is starting to be, become a complete misnomer. You know, let me say this for those people who appreciate this. The social work pioneers were not safe, were they? They were out there pounding the pavement, if you want to be snarky about it. They were not safe, right? So COS and, and, and those people who started, they were not safe in any way, you know? And, and I think that when we're saying safety, I want to also be clear for social work clinicians as well. When we are training so nuanced social workers, we are not to give nuanced social workers the promise of therapeutic safety that we give our clients. That is not the same thing, no. So whatever social work um, instructors who are promising that, you are actually creating harm and you are entering into a dual relationship for another podcast. You're actually entering into a dual relationship that is not supposed to be happening. You are going to be their therapist or you're going to be their instructor. You cannot do both. So we are not supposed to be promising our students um, a therapeutic safety. So let's get that off the table. That is not the promise because you cannot enter into a difficult conversation and becoming an upcoming professional with a client. They're not our clients. There are students that we are asking to enter and engage into a transformative process into becoming a professional. So therefore, they are not allowed and they are not paying us to give them, correct? A therapeutic safety. So let's move that aside. Secondly, in ASW as profession, as a profession, our own profession does not allot us that safety. If you look at NASW, they tell us that we have safety from violence. So when you are telling students that we are giving them safety, right, we have to fall in line with the profession. This is why social work is getting all in a muck with stuff. We are walking outside the alignment of what our profession is allowing for us. Our profession says that safety is talking about violence. So when I promise my students safety and I said I will allow, I'm I'm going to put myself out there and I tell my students, I promise this will be a safe environment. Meaning, I will have you put out of this school if I ever find out that you have physically harmed or bullied another student because of the thinking that they have offered in the school because I am in a primarily white institution. I told them, I will go, you don't know me, I, I will make certain that happens. Because if somebody is trying to learn and you want to catch them on the corner and physically harm them and bully them, that's the safety I provide. However, I will never offer you safety, meaning I'm going to protect you from being uncomfortable because that is hindering the transformative process that you have invested and paid that I am to offer you. And I have a responsibility. Is that not what you paid this university for? And that's what I said. That's what I tell them. I said, so therefore you want to pay money and I not do my job. And I am telling you, I have been teaching for seven to eight years and I have never once had any student go and report me for making them feel uncomfortable because I tell them in the very beginning, it is your responsibility as it is mine. You're paying me to do a job to transform you into a professional. And part of that transformation is for you to do the work in being uncomfortable. And part of that transformation, change hurts, right? 
change is questioning what all the things that you've been taught in the past that is part of change and transformation and if you are not transforming i'm either not doing my job or you're not doing yours and i do my job well so that means you must not be doing yours right and so then that's what we have a conversation about you know and i've never once had someone go report me i've never once had someone confront me and say oh dr visa you know oh you've hurt me i've never once and it's always been meaningful because if you explain to people why they're doing this instead of just dropping a bomb you know and if you're being honest and thoughtful and if they know you're comfortable about being uncomfortable yourself they're going to follow suit you know one thing I say clients as well as students will always rise to your expectation of them if you have no expectation of them they won't they have nothing to rise to you know, and so therefore, once again, that falls back on us as professors, instructors, and as social work professionals. It's always, it comes back to us that we have an issue with difficult conversations. It's not the clients. It's not the students. It's us. We, we have the issue and we, and we just have to do better. And we have to change that narrative. And so moving from creating safe spaces uh, how do we create brave spaces? How do we create create courageous conversations and safety parameters in which to be uncomfortable and in which to be courageous in that way? So I'm going to give you credit for it, um, Candice, but I'm going to start. I'm going to stop saying uh, safe spaces. That's just going to leave my vocabulary and I'm going to say brave spaces because how do we create those brave spaces? So with that in mind, what, where do we go from here? What do we do with all of this information if we're willing to be brave and if we're willing to be courageous? So I'm going to ask in, in a few different settings, uh, but we'll start with the social work classroom first. How can we contribute toward an anti-racist social work education and anti-racist social work practice first in the social work classroom? So, so that has different layers, right? I, I think that, um, let's just say, just in a classroom with students, again, to be intentional and to immediately start with the expectation of what is my expectation for you as a student. Students enter into this. It's an investment, you know, and, and I really believe this. There is no, I've never run into a student that's like oh I just want to do this because there's nothing else to do social work education takes time that's a lot of work it's a lot of money that's invested into that you know and if you're explaining to them why they have to do that in the beginning then they want to do it but when you're just walking in and say oh you can't be racist anymore well why you know nobody likes change you know, if you're questioning my values, if you're telling me that, oh, I can't be X anymore, if someone's telling you you can't be Christian anymore, or you can't be Muslim anymore, or you can't be this anymore, somebody, that's trans-theoretical model of change. You better give somebody a very good reason why I must change the way I have always thought and people I've looked up to have told me this has been right my entire life and now you're telling me well it may not be right in this instance you better come with some very good data and some very good reasons on why I can no longer think like this anymore or why I must you know um, entertain the reason why I must think a certain you know differently and so that is some something we must change ourselves we have to go in explaining to people maybe why we must shift things a little bit differently and i'll also say you know ben again this idea of humanness and i tell students you know you don't have to change today and i tell them you're going to walk in with very some of you with very black and white thinking or maybe very pink and white thinking but you cannot be a human being right and always see things like that because you in social work, the beauty of our profession, you will go and move into some gray thinking. Our profession is so much gray, you know. Is it wrong to hurt somebody? 
you know, and I tell people, you know, and I give this example, and this is going to so, you know, what we have to give the um, warning, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to harm anybody, but an example I give to my students to move them to gray thinking, you know, I ask them, is homicide wrong? Of course, homicide is wrong, you know, but I've worked in law enforcement, social work in law enforcement, you know, and I had a client who came home and her significant other was severely sexually harming her five-year-old daughter and in a moment. She killed him. I said, now I'm asking you, is homicide wrong? And people have to take a pause. You understand? So it's those kind of gray kind of areas. Like, yes, yeah, wrong, but, but, you know? And so those kind of shifting in values and shifting in thinking. And so I explained to them, we're not, in social work, we're not asking you to change who you are. We're asking you to give consideration toward humanness. I'm not asking you to change of the core of who you are. Can you give some consideration? So I'm not asking you necessarily to love BIPOC people. I'm asking you to give consideration to me as a human being. That, that's just different. And can we start right there? Can I, I'm asking you to give consideration to you can have whatever discriminatory thoughts you want about me because I'm black, but you do know I have a son and I love him and you know I'm a daughter. And you know I'm a friend. And you know I have family who loves me. I'm a human being as well. You can have whatever thoughts you want of me. But I'm also a human being. And can we start right there? You know, and so I think in the classroom to start dropping those nuggets and connecting that at the end of all of this, all of us have basic things. We're human. We want respect. We want to be loved. And we want people to leave us alone if they just don't care for us. Just get out of our way and just leave us be if you don't mean us well. And all human beings just want that in the classroom. I think that's what it is. But now when you're talking about that big thing, Ben, that big macro wheel, man, that's on some whole, I'm gonna be honest, I'm not even trying to fight that one, Ben. You know, I, I just do what I can do in the classroom. I think we all have our spaces and there's some people who can fight that big macro wheel. And there's some people who are meant to fight that mezzo wheel, you know, and I do what I can on mezzo, but I find my space in micro, you know, and, and I will say that I'm kind of proud of myself and that I do my micro work, but you know what I'm finding? My micro work, guess what? After eight years, guess where my students are going work in Washington and my students are going to do policy work and they call me back. Oh, and they love that they graduate and they get to call me Candace. And they call me back and they say, Candace, guess what? I have this job here, here, here. And guess what? I changed this policy and I thought of you and I remember what you taught me. And I finished and I did this and I changed this. And I think that is where we also have power to influence others who have the power and the privilege. Right? Because guess what, Ben? It's the white men that I taught who's going to get those jobs, who's making the change, that's remembering what we taught them, who's using their power and their privilege to go make change. And so that's how I'm kind of utilizing that because I myself don't have the power Been in the big <laughs> macro. I'm tired. I told them I'm leaving that to y'all. I don't have it. I, I don't have it for the classroom. No. Well, um, and I'll ask here in a moment about the, those other practice uh, settings and how we can do that. But first, Warren, um, how do you create those brave spaces and how do you contribute to anti-racist social work practice in your classroom settings? So contributing to kind of anti-racist practice, that's almost like the easier of the two to to to. to, to to, to describe. Um, there are some very concrete things that we can do as, as professors and instructors um, that, that make the difference, you know, for students. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about decolonizing social work. You know, we, have, we, we can start by decolonizing our classroom, you know, because representation matters. So, you know, as I'm teaching, you know, what am I teaching? What articles am I using? What textbooks am I using? Am I using uh, videos, podcasts, you know, do do the authors of these things, are they reflective of everyone, you know, who may show up in any specific class? You know, am I teaching students theory um, created by, by white men, presumably for a white population, or am I using uh, bell hooks or using something else so that students can actually see themselves reflected in their scholarship and in the literature? 
that I'm asking them to learn. Um, you know, if for those of us who are in charge of sequences and chairs, you know, who is t- who, who, who are we selecting to teach some of this content? You know, that that's also important, you know, because representation matters. Representation matters for the student who's sitting in that, that chair wondering, why am I here? You know, why am I here? You know, either because I don't deserve to be here or because my peers are making me feel like I don't deserve to be here. So being able to have a professor who looks like them, who may have a shared historical traumatic experience navigating some of the same hallways that they have are now navigating, that's important. Um, and that's that's not a heavy lift, you know, per se. So, so changing some of the uh, material that you're usually uh, putting people in front of students who may look like them, um, or at the very least, don't aren't representative of the status quo. Um, creating assignments that make students uncomfortable because it forces them to look at the different levels of identity that clients may hold and people may hold, I think is important too. You know, can we tweak the assignments we're giving students? Can we create self-reflective assignments um, which are going to force students to lean lean into these learning edges that are going to contribute to that self-reflection that we talked about earlier? You know, we can create these assignments. You know, we don't have to just give students multiple choice quizzes because it's easier for us doing it, launching it through Blackboard. We don't have to do anything. We don't even have to look at it. You know, we can do that, you know, but we have to will be willing sometimes to make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable in order to contribute to student learning. Um, the, we can, you know, for those of us who sit on, on committees, um, you know, how are we contributing to integrating this content and concepts across the curriculum? You know, I don't have to just be mindful of my own little piece of the pie, my own little space in the universe. But, you know, I, I, I can mention that someone else's course is, is very whitewashed. And that does nothing for the students of, of color, presumably, you know, in that space. Um, so that we, we are all looking at this as a, a cumulative experience, you know, uh, the, the schools, the classrooms, they don't have to be an extension of the same oppressive conditions that our students may be coming from. So we, we can, there are things that we can do that are not a heavy lift to, to do this. And, you know, even if that's just encouraging conversations amongst, you know, our, our faculty and students, because it's a parallel process, right? The same conversations faculty are having with students, students should be having with field instructors, field instructors should be having with their field liaisons or field advisors, who should in turn be having these same conversations with representatives in field and faculty. And so uh, many of our listeners I know are, are current social work practitioners, so in what way can we then extend these conversations, whether it's at that micro agency practice level or in those meso spaces and yes even in those macro level advocacy uh, spaces how can our listeners engage in these conversations and and contribute to anti-racist social work practice i think allow the client to tell their story you know i i think as um now click going to my um, practice hut, we are so very quick to kind of get into, you know, the issue of why, you know, the client is there. And maybe not connecting um, for the client how race and oppression plays into those issues as well. You know, um, we see like in medical social work, you know, and, and I and, and people don't like to discuss it. But honestly, during George Floyd, you know, the emergency room was booming, you know, with people having exacerbations of heart problems, exacerbation of asthma, you know, and, and it's like, okay, well, where is this coming from? Exactly, you know, and what happens in the world has an effect on our health, it has an effect on our psyche, it has an effect on how we deal with our own families, you know, and so I think that whether you're a status quo uh, practitioner, or you're a practitioner dealing with another BIPOC person, right? If I consider myself black, I don't know all the stories from brown people, nor do all brown people know my story, you understand? And so just because we share BIPOC, 
does not mean we necessarily understand each other, you know, and so that's another issue as well. And so I think allowing clients to tell their story and ask, has anything happened in your community that, you know, you want to discuss? Has anything happened that was harmful in your community that you think may have played a part in, you know, you and your spouse having issues, you know, and and you'll start finding, well, yeah, you know, a lot of people maybe have lost jobs or a lot of people and then it's intrinsically connected with issues of race and whatever, you know, and if you have the ability, once again, with, you know, tenants of code switching and that kind of thing to help that person navigate or help that person process those issues, give them something else to think about, then that's how you embed those, you know, tenets of anti-racism and DEI within practice. But we don't do that. We just want to jump into CBT and we just want to jump into, you know, structural and Bowenian and, and we want to jump into all of those things. And sometimes just educating people about how to navigate, you know, that white supremacist harm, you know, and, and people really think this is foolishness. As a person of color, white supremacy has harmed me more than things that have caused me to be divorced. It has caused, has harmed me more than issues from my family, and I'm speaking as a human being. Those things has hurt me more than the things that I have internally gone through just within my own family. You understand? It's just that thankfully I've had the, it, you know, I've had my own ways of working through that. Everyone doesn't have that. So I think that if you are a practitioner helping people with those things, you know, will help for better outcomes in whatever intervention that you're utilizing. I would I would add that, you know, for, for practitioners, you know, if we, we consider, you know, using a, a trauma focused orientation or, or lens through which to to you know kind of encapsulate some of the work that we're doing, you know, we can probably identify in some of the ways in which, uh, like you said, again, this white supremacy is harmful. It's not just harmful. These are actual threats against black bodies that we're talking about. So, you know, if you have a diverse uh, client population, maybe asking, you know, how about utilize the ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences, like utilize that tool, maybe come from an orientation where you're thinking about post-traumatic slave syndrome and historical trauma and how that can manifest in generations and generations. Or consider Menekin when he talks about, you know, in his book, My My Grandmother's Hands, where he talks about how trauma kind of, it it stays in the body, like it, 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 it lives, it breathes in the body. And, you know, uh, you know, the connection between that and like social determinants of health um, and physiological issues, you know, um, maybe it, the, the, the fix is requiring practitioners to go a little bit deeper in the work that they're actually doing uh, with their client populations. Uh, not, not all the clients who are going to be here before you know exactly why they're there. You know, um, so so maybe going a little bit deeper, thinking about trauma um, and its various manifestations. And as we're thinking about the differences in uh, CSWE EPAS from 2015 to 2022. So 2015, competency two was advanced human rights and social, racial, economic, and environmental justice. Um, but but think about the progression in, in 2022, which says engage diversity and difference in practice. I think that's what we need to do as practitioners, engage diversity and difference and, and maybe ask for, for these understandings of people's lived experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we just have um, a couple minutes left, but I wanted to end with looking forward, looking at the future. So I'd like to ask you both, if you would, what are your hopes for equity, diversity, and inclusion in the social work profession in the coming years? My hope is that we actually, um, that we understand and we internalize that we are not doing anything nuanced, that we are not doing anything different, that we actually take the calls and the ethics that our profession has held forth and we actually internalize it and we actually act upon it. It is my hope that we stand on that truth. And if we stand on the truth of what our profession calls us to do, all of a sudden difficult conversations will not be so difficult. Truth is truth. 
Fact is a fact. If someone says it's two plus two, four, no one falls apart about that. It's four. What you want me to do about it, right? And so if someone <laughs> says, you know, oh, to have these discussions, this is just what we must do. There's nothing to fall apart about. Don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. Go talk about it with NASW. This is what our profession tells us we must do, you know. And so all of a sudden, these conversations won't be daunting. This is what we must do. And I believe that if we stand upon that, what we discussed in um, segment one, then it automatically is an aversion toward people who does not want to ascribe to this. Right. But it also will draw close those people who will do amazing work within our profession, you know, and it will help us push the profession forward to what we all were originally called to do. And that is my hope. Absolutely. Thank you, Warren. What are your hopes for EDI and social work? Uh, my hope is that these conversations become so much the norm that they become passe you know, that we have incorporated these these values into everything that we do, that DEI and, and the corresponding work isn't something adjunctive to social work, but it becomes literally a part ingrained in everything that we do in the profession, whether that's practice, whether that's teaching, uh, whether that's supervision, you know, everything from, from the rooter to the tutor. I think it really needs to be um, a part of our professional orientation, how we socialize ourselves to the profession. Um, and that also means holding our social work organizations accountable for, for making that so. Um, I would love to see a CSWE mandate that says that schools of social work have to weave this content all throughout their curriculum and have a standalone course speaking to this very specifically because I've been in environments where I've seen how you can bury either or. It shouldn't be either or, it should be both and. And we, we need to be doing more. Um, and, you know, we need to be supporting the people in the classrooms having these difficult conversations. Uh, we need to do more supporting students who are uncomfortable having these conversations because they've never been forced to have them. And how the profession will hold accountable professionals, not the states. The profession holds people accountable who does not ascribe yes. to these tenants as well. Wanted to throw that out. Yes. There you go. Well, I want to thank you both for having this brave conversation, this two-part podcast with me and, and, and with our listeners. I, I, I hope that um, we can continue to move forward and we can continue to expand upon these brave conversations in all of the spaces which we exist, those that were meant for us to exist in and those that were not. Thank you again to both of you and thank you to our listeners. Thank you for having me. Thank you.